The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Each week we choose three pieces from the magazine and ask their writers to read them aloud. I'm Oscar Edmondson and on the podcast this week, do politics and religion mix? Isabel Hardman reads her piece on what she calls the secular inquisition. Christopher Howes tells us about the transformative power of folk costume. And Lucy Dunn reads her notes on meal deals. Up first, Isabel Hardman. The secular inquisition. Why must Christian politicians defend their beliefs? What did Kate Forbes' supporters expect would happen when the Scottish Finance Secretary and Scottish National Party leadership candidate was asked whether she would have voted for the legalisation of gay marriage if she had been in the Scottish Parliament at the time? She said that she wouldn't because, as a devout Christian, she believes marriage is between a man and a woman. She added that if she became the first minister, she would not row back on rights that already exist. In response to her honest answer, several of her backers threw their hands up in horror and withdrew their support. One of her own finance ministers said he was unable to continue to support Kate's campaign because equal marriage was one of Holyrood's greatest achievements. Others followed suit, all sounding surprised that someone who has always been open about her membership of the Free Church of Scotland might hold true to its teaching, even when a big job came along. Even if they hadn't known Forbes personally very well before they backed her, Surely they understood the religious landscape of their country. The wee frees, as they are referred to in Scotland, are known to hold socially conservative views on marriage, abortion and other moral issues. Being shocked that Forbes also holds these views is like being shocked that a Catholic might agree with the Pope. The ferocity of the reaction to Forbes is the latest example of the way a secular inquisition works against leading politicians with religious beliefs they actually stick to. When Liberal Democrat leader Tim Farron quit his post after the 2017 general election, he said that it had felt impossible for him to hold faithfully to the Bible's teaching. He had spent much of his tenure dodging questions on gay sex, whereas Forbes has made the decision to confront them early and take the heat. But what the SNP leadership contest shows us is that the Inquisition has changed a lot in the intervening six years, and in some ways for the better. The slightly ludicrous surprise of Forbes' supporters at her views on marriage was nothing compared with the shock on the faces of Nicola Sturgeon and other more liberal politicians who recently found themselves being grilled about their beliefs for the first time. One of the factors in the First Minister's resignation was the mess over her support for gender self-ID and her gender recognition reform bill. Like Farron, she struggled to answer the same question over and over again. For her, it was... Is the convicted rapist Isla Bryson a man or a woman? Her answers became less and less credible. During First Minister's questions, she ended up inventing a third sex of rapist in order to avoid answering the question, saying, what I think is relevant in this case or not is not whether the individual is a man or claims to be a woman or is trans. What is relevant is that the individual is a rapist. When she was asked whether there were contexts where a trans woman is not a woman and whether that meant they were not equal to biological women, 
Sturgeon looked totally exasperated to have her thinking pulled apart. Sturgeon will have grown used to those sorts of questions, which seek to suggest someone is falling prey to magical thinking, being asked of people like Forbes, the people with beliefs. Sturgeon and many in her party, and across politics in fact, have ended up thinking that if you do not have religious views, then you are effectively neutral. Their worldview, they believe, is the default way of thinking and therefore the only people who have to explain themselves are the ones who deviate because of religion. Forbes's answers on why she would have voted against gay marriage might not please everyone, but she has clearly had to think them through and practice arguing them to highly critical audiences. Sturgeon, on the other hand, was not used to being treated with such suspicion, even in the hurly-burly climate of Scottish politics. Forbes and Farron are both evangelical Christians, but differ in their approach to politics. Forbes comes from a tradition that believes that lawmakers who allow, for instance, gay marriage, are harming the very people they are supposed to be guiding and protecting by allowing them something that God sees as wrong. Farron, meanwhile, thinks it is wrong to legislate to force people to live as Christians when they are not. I know a little of the world both of these politicians move in. For 10 years, I was very active in the evangelical church in England. I left the church seven years ago and hold no candle for its stance on many things. But even at the time, I found it strange that my fellow believers would argue so passionately that they deserved freedom to practice their religion while campaigning vociferously against freedom for others to marry whom they chose. It seemed to me that if we wanted to be left alone to believe what we did about sin and salvation, we should afford the same to everyone else. My own worldview has changed a great deal more since then, but I find it strange that these days no one accuses me of woolly thinking on moral issues, even when I haven't interrogated my beliefs very much at all. I remained as capable of being daft and ignorant as when I had a faith, but now I'm not held to be suspicious. Everyone has a worldview which needs interrogating. It's no bad thing when politicians asked, as Kate Forbes was, what's your position on the morality of the issue? It's just that religious people in politics, and more so conservative Christians and, say, conservative Muslims, are much more used to others being suspicious of their beliefs and assumptions than secular progressives. Anyone who has had a faith will be used to being accused of believing in a sky ghost, or of having their beliefs about, say, transubstantiation, mocked as magical thinking. Now, progressives hear the same insult thrown back at them when they defend gender self-ID. Aren't you guilty of magical thinking too, by saying a man can decide he is a woman, regardless of chromosomes or genitalia? Many find that very question deeply offensive and refuse to put the legwork into explaining themselves in a way that they would demand of their religious peers. Of course, the main opponents of gender self-ID tend not to have much to do with organised religion either, but it's easier to lump them in with the God-botherers than to give them a hearing. This laziness is one of the very reasons the gender debate has ended up being such a mess. When you assume there is a default right view, you stop interrogating its underlying assumptions. You stop understanding how to argue your case, or even when to change your mind. You ignore those who disagree with you and fail to spot when they have a valid critique of what you are trying to achieve. How much easier, and more cowardly, it is to simply declare that someone who thinks differently to you has no place in a modern political party. Politics becomes flabby, and policies dangerous when consensus crushes opposing arguments. Forbes clearly knew she had to answer for her beliefs. The worry 
is that her opponents don't seem to think they deserve the same treatment. That was Isabel Hardman. Next, Christopher Howes. In a remarkable photograph by Benjamin Stone from 1899, it must be, six men in breeches of a crisscross floral pattern hold up great reindeer antlers. Carbon dating of these objects produced the year 1066, plus or minus 80. In the picture, a man in a bowler hat holds a squeeze box, and on the right, a serious-faced boy stands with a hobby horse head emerging from the cloth that swathes him. The photograph features in the exhibition Making Mischief, Folk Costume in Britain. It shows the Abbot's Bromley horn dance performed annually on the Monday after Old St Bartholomew's Day, the 4th of September, of course. Never mind that the breeches were made in the 1880s by Mrs J. Manley Lowe, wife of the vicar of this Staffordshire parish. The origins of the mysterious antlers are anyone's guess, and the hobby horse immediately connects it with otherworldly horses in folk performances that spectators like to think date from time immemorial. Take the famous Padsto hobby horse, which comes out every May Day. A man carries a frame hung with black cloth through which protrudes his head, covered with a conical hat and a weird mask. The horse has a head too at the front of the framework. It seems to have its own life. It's surprising how versatile and lifelike such a strange monster can be, says the respected folklorist Steve Rood. It walks, sways, dances, sings and swoops, not much like a horse, admittedly, but like a live creature all the same. I've seen the same illusion in giants dancing in Sanguessa near the Pyrenees. In these 11-foot figures, built over wickerwork frames, a man inside looks out through a gauze square in the costume. They dance nimbly and with dignity, bowing and circling. Quevedo, the Spanish Baroque poet, wrote a sonnet, Desengaño de la Exterior Apariencia, seeing through outward shows. Do you see that great giant walking along with such gravity and pride. Well, inside there's just a framework of split sticks and scraps of cloth held up by some drudge. Quevedo writes the poetry of disenchantment, but ritual folk costumes work in the opposite direction, to conjure the poetry of the unknown. I mention Spain because seeing things there invites a sharper look at goings-on at home. At Antrobus in Cheshire... A hobby horse like the one at Abbots Bromley comes from the land of the dead. The Antrobus Soul Cakers mumming play ends with the wild horse and his driver saying, In comes Dick and all his men. He's come to see you once again. He was alive, but now he's dead. He's nothing but a poor horse's head. There's a sort of logic to soul caking. Mummers visit houses and are given soul cakes. In return, they pray for the souls of the dead. This very much annoyed Philip Stubbs, the Elizabethan pamphleteer, who in 1593 lashed out at those who give soul cakes, for so they shame not to call them, for the redemption of all Christian souls, as they blasphemously speak. But he doesn't flog the dead horse in the enterprise, about which he remains silent. 
A horse's skull is often used in folk rituals, which looks very different from a live horse's head. This was the case with the Mary Lewid, Grey Mare, Christmas time ritual in South Wales. With false eyes inserted and the jaw made to snap, the perambulating horse skull presented a ghastly aspect. What an eerie monster he looks, wrote George Addy at the beginning of the 20th century about guising in England. He opens his jaws and shuts them with a horrid, metallic sort of a rattle. His painted eyeballs stare around with a kind of rigid, death-like smile. That was in the ritual simply called Old Horse (laughs) that took place where Derbyshire, Yorkshire and Nottinghamshire meet. Householders paid participants with food, drink or money once they'd let the horse and his followers in. In East Kent, the creature was called the Hodden Horse. Hodden means wooden or perhaps hooded, but the horse, a man beneath a sheet, had a skull for a head before it was replaced with a wooden one. His doings were recorded by another keen Edwardian folklorist, Percy Malham. The Hodden horse's jaws opened and closed when the Hoddener, beneath the sheet, pulled a string. He was accompanied by a driver, a music maker and a molly, a man dressed up as a woman with a broom. They visited on Christmas Eve and would not go away until they were given food, drink or money. The motive of the Hoddeners may have been mercenary, but that did not explain the meaning of their ritual. It became extinct with the First World War and then saw some revival in the 30s, more in the 1950s as an adjunct to folk dancing. A pub in Ramsgate, in the Hungry Horse chain, was renamed the Hooden Horse, a different spelling of the same word. The custom transferred to Morris-infested seasons, uh, such as May Day, is now seen as a fixture. A very different way of being disguised as a horse is also shown in photographs at Compton Verney, where the present exhibition is being held. This is the outfit for little girls at Orkney's annual Festival of the Horse, held in August at St Margaret's Hope, a village on South Ronaldsay. At the same time, little boys in a gender-determined role engage seriously in ploughing matches with miniature ploughs in the sand on the seashore. The young girls wear a broad horse collar embroidered with bead patterns and fringed with tassels. A decorative horse bit hangs below the chin. Shiny black shoes with ankle fringes mimic the plough horse's feathered fetlock. Long sleeves and long shorts are covered with bead patterning. The girls do not look like horses. They look sweet, but very unusual. Where have we seen the appearance before? The beadwork may suggest First Nation dress in North America. Some liken it to button-sewn clothes of cockney pearlies. I think there's a danger here of false resemblances. As a parallel, I notice that young women in traditional dress wear round hairpiece earphone-shaped things for the crazy drunken week of Las Fayas in Valencia where human effigies three storeys high are burnt in the street. This headdress resembles the strange earphones on the celebrated 
2,400-year-old stone bust of the Dama de Elche, which is now in the Archaeological Museum in Madrid. But it would be rash to suggest any connection. Among folk costumes, I find most impressive those that transform the human body into something unnameable. It's quite easily done. The Burry Man of South Queensferry, West Lothian, is annually covered with thousands of burdock burrs. His face is hidden. He cannot put his arms to his side or they'd be stuck, as with Velcro. So two attendants help him walk for hours through the streets holding two tall sticks. To drink, he must use a straw. Homer Sykes's photograph of him accomplishing this feat in a pub in 1977, is now in the government art collection. The whole point about folk costume is that we don't know what it's all about. It's the alienation effect. No one knows why it's done. To ward off evil spirits, say some, as though evil spirits were widely known to avoid burrs. Or take the Whittlesea straw bear, led about the Fenland town on the Tuesday following Plough Monday. It's just a man covered in straw, but the clincher is the stook taking the place of a head. When the creature dances and circles, it has no back or front. You've just missed a more bear-like bear in the gathering at the end of January in the Choaldanak, dancing men in tall, conical, coloured hats, belted with cowbells in Basque-speaking Navarre. Troops from the villages of Ituren, e Thubieta, meet on the little bridge over the river Ethkura. This shaggy bear appeared in an influential book of photographs by Cristina García Rodero from 1992, which was called Espana Fiestas y Ritos, which covered the rites and rescued them from touristic interpretations and saw them rather as expressions of the mysterious. Christian connections are not precluded by this. In Zamora, northwest Spain, Societies from villages around gather in the autumn for the annual Festival of Masks. I saw them at it before the pandemic, and an additional impression was the noise, mostly of discordant cowbells. The simplest transformation seemed the most effective. The two-foot diameter circular red-painted mask with round eyes of the Thangoron de Martamata runs around brandishing a trident. He simply holds the mask before his face, but in that moment he becomes another being. That was Christopher House. And finally, Lucy Dunn. Floored ceiling, sandwiches are piled high. Not just sandwiches. Pastas, wraps, baguettes, sushi, brown bread, white tortillas, bacon, chicken, vegan chicken, tuna, cucumber, falafel. Smoothies and energy drinks crowd on one side, while yogurts, crisps and cakes are heaped on the other. The meal deal section of a supermarket is a thing of beauty. The variety of combinations covers almost all cravings, preferences and dietary requirements at roughly the price of a standard London coffee. 
I don't understand colleagues who waste their evenings making up a large quantity of the same dish for lunch the next day. The smugness of stringent meal preppers must turn into gloom when, by Friday, they're faced with the prospect of defrosting the fifth frozen chilli of the week. I, meanwhile, will never have that problem. Yet the Welsh government has announced that it is considering a meal deal ban. Without meal deals, I would be lost, 22-year-old Connor told the BBC. You and me both, Connor. I eat at least one, sometimes two and once, three meal deals a day. The meal deal was conceived by Boots, but the art of the quick lunch goes back much further. The fourth Earl of Sandwich is generally credited with the invention that took his name in 1762 after demanding, during a particularly strenuous gambling session, he be served a cut of beef between two slices of bread. As Woody Allen pointed out, surely such a self-evident thing hardly counts as an invention. But to this day, its true origins, if earlier, remain a mystery. The popularity of quick and convenient lunches shows no sign of slowing. By 1990, Britain's sandwich industry was valued at £1 billion. In 2017, Sainsbury's was thought to sell more than 436,000 an hour. Numerous Facebook pages bring together convenience-loving communities to rate each other's food choices and determine from which shops the best options can be located. Tesco retains its position as kingpin, though there's a jump from £3 to £3.90 for those of us without club cards. The Guardian reckons the co-op's pickings came a close second, but a quick and unscientific social media poll told me that in fact M&S was next in line, despite its offer coming in more than £5. Meal deals are now no longer confined to lunch. Ingredients like bacon, egg and avocado make sandwiches appealing to early morning commuters as well. I can vouch for the fact they can provide a fairly substantial dinner too. I don't subscribe to the idea that the final meal of the day needs to be a hot one. But for those who do, companies are looking into serving up warm sandwiches to entice commuters on their way home. So why has Mark Drakeford's Killjoy government decided to go after meal deals? The proposal will, apparently, support better health, but meal deals can be healthy. That's the beauty of the choice they offer. In addition, this reasoning just makes no sense. Why stop here? Why not ban everything until all that is left is government-approved nutritious slurp? I find it hard to believe that we convenience eaters would suddenly turn into salad lovers overnight. More likely is that McDonald's will experience a huge surge in profits. That was Lucy Dunn. And that's everything for this week. If you enjoyed those articles, why not pick up a copy of The Spectator magazine? I'm Oscar Edmondson, and I hope you join us again next week.